You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events in order to enhance, enliven, and invigorate American theater and the live performance arts. You guys like that? That's our new mission statement. We just recently revised it, so you'll probably be hearing a whole lot more of that. But on with the show. This week, I talked with Christopher Battles. Uh, Chris is someone who I've heard about for a while. Um, He's obviously very good friends with Elise McKelvey. They worked together for years at the Marine Corps Combat Arts Program. And Chris runs the program. He is the artist in residence. And he is uh, just somebody I, I was a natural for me to reach out to and try to get on the show. And I'm really excited. He's going to be doing our next Savage Wonderground event. That's going to be super cool. Um, so <laughs> I got a lot of ulterior motives for wanting to talk to him. But anyway, it was it was great to have him on. Uh, you know, one of the many takeaways I had while we were talking was, you know, it's easy in the civilian world or, I don't know, you know, the more and more I get into the showbiz world again, uh, I keep running into people who need the quick bullet points on your military career, want to hear the quick highlights. And I think something that civilians often miss out on is how glib and superficial that is. You know, Chris, as he identifies himself on the show, you know, was as pogue as could be. And then you listen to all the places he's been, all the things he's done. And, you know, this constant need to classify people by what their job title is in the civilian mind. And I guess sometimes for veterans, I guess we play this game too amongst ourselves sometimes, but it's different if you've, if you're in, you know, it's different to kind of Josh with ourselves, but when it's outsiders, when civilians kind of looking in and trying to judge your career based off of bullet points, based off of job descriptions without really understanding the person involved, the sacrifices made, the risks taken, the gambles made, the adventures had, um, it, it's, it really misses the point and listening to him and the years he spent in Haiti and literally years he spent in Haiti, um, you know, the, deployments he had as a combat artist, um, just all the different things that, you know, have enlivened, enhanced, enriched his art. You know, it can't be summed up in bullet points. And I think that's, um, you know, there, I know there's a lot of, I don't know if hate is the right word, but uh, there's sometimes a, um, I don't know, sometimes I detect a degree of resentment in the veteran community when somebody can go, I was a green beret, I was a seal. And I think I'm kind of speculating here, but I feel like some of that resentment comes from the fact that those descriptions, those jobs sum up everything in a bullet point. Um, You say that and people can quickly, easily, succinctly get a glimpse at the wide degree of experiences you must have had. Whereas for everybody else, you kind of, you kind of have to, you you know, uh, 
if if you actually want to give people an easy cliff notes version of of who you are or your qualities or your attributes or your strengths uh it's a little bit more complex than that but those are kind of jobs that you know quickly sum that up and that's you know i, I i'm just saying it as an observation i think it's uh i i wonder if there's if some of the resentment that uh soft dudes get sometimes comes from that uh which isn't fair to them i mean it's uh well i don't know if fairness is really the issue it's it i think it's absolutely a great way and absolutely a handle that's worth using and a description that does sum things up accurately and why not use it it's just interesting that uh you know i think again it's that it's that uh if you're trying to impress people, and by impress, I, I shouldn't use, say impress. If you're trying to accurately convey to people some degree of your capabilities or some degree of your history, those are great. Uh, those are great uh, jobs to have had because they are easy to sum up and quickly convey a broad range of experiences. Um, whereas other jobs kind of leave a lot more uh, to be determined by a casual listener, um, which is why a lot of veterans then just don't try to appeal to casual listeners and maybe undersell themselves or maybe misrepresent themselves or maybe, um, you know, underplay themselves, uh, you know, say something that is, you know, kind of go the other way and, and kind of, you know, slough off their military experience. Anyway, that was one of the takeaways I had listening to Chris was just, you know, if you just put the bullet points down, you could use like, oh, whatever, just poke as fuck. And it's like, dude, but to go through all the, to have seen what he's seen and then have an artist's eye for it, uh, that really captures just so much. And, uh, and plus he's just a great dude. It was just great to talk to him. But that was one of, that was kind of my one uh, takeaway that I felt I could mine <laughs> at length in this intro. Anyway, um, let me step out of the way because Chris has got a lot to say. It it was a really fun conversation, though. And, uh, yeah, and I I guess I'll also just say this one thing on the artistic content that we talked to, that he and I talk about. Um, I thought it was really interesting, and I realized in retrospect I might have kind of been um, damning with faint praise uh, artists in the combat art artist program by saying, Hey, you know, it's tough for you probably to have world-class artists because you need people that also conform to the military world and can fit in and can be plug and play in a lot of different uh, situations and need to understand how the military works and, 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 you know, stay within their left and right limits, which sometimes I could see chafing against an artist mentality. And I realized after I said that, I was like, boy, that's kind of damning with faint praise. Like great artists can't be a part of that program. Um, but I, I hope nobody takes as an insult or there's a, a, you know, some diminution of their talent or ability there. I, I think I, what I intended was for it to sound the other way that it's really incredible. The volume and quality of artwork that comes out of that program when you are straddling two very different worlds. I mean, that very artistic, you know, sensibility that needs, freedom that needs inspiration that needs you know creativity um and the rigid military uh structure which is necessarily repressive and necessarily disciplined um and it's just hard to straddle that um i know i've talked about with several folks on this show luke ryan um i feel like there's other folks that we've talked about 
you know, the difficulty that can happen in trying to write while you're in uniform or trying to create while you're in uniform, um, just because it's two different worlds. And I think Luke was actually one of the few people that said, no, 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 I was able to kind of do that. And I was kind of blown away with that because that didn't track with my experience or, um, in any way. So anyway, uh, couple of little takeaways uh, that I just wanted to get out of the way in the intro. Okay, without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the Savage Wonder of Chris Battles. Welcome to the show, Chris. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. Um, I'm really glad to uh, finally get you on. Um, you must be insanely busy, is what I'm guessing, because there's not that many I'm, of you. No, there's not that many, right? It's a great gig if you can get it, as they say. Uh, <laughs> but there are a lot of, you know, just a lot of things in my job. Of course, there's the, the combat art program and there's the creating artwork as part of the program. So it's quite a busy life. Yeah. Break those down for me. So what does that mean on a day-to-day level? What are you doing that's different between those two gigs? Um, Well, I've got two hats. I've got a managerial or supervisory hat. So I'm sort of, I manage the combat art program, which really, um, it means I have several artists that work as part of the program. And so it's like herding cats, as they say. So you have, you know, artists are wonderful, creative personalities and they're off doing all their own thing and they each have different styles both personally and visually and so i'm always having to um just there's a lot of little admin things and communication things yep and i'm trying to get them out to places to do artwork which is an i know it's a whole other interesting uh logistical nightmare sometimes so there's lots a lot of little things like that so Day-to-day mornings are administrative work and managerial type stuff. And then hopefully afternoons and evenings are more of the creative side. So I thought the Marine Corps figured out a way around that because they keep hiring Marines. So there, there's no there's no uh, set battle rhythm. The artists can't conform to, <laughs> to going, hey, well, right. Marine Corps standards, well, we is, need you coming up on the net right. at this time and all that. Well, the, that's the funny part. I, I, every time I do a battle rhythm and I get in one, uh, the situation on the ground changes, you know, another demand comes along. Oh, I've got to fit that in somehow. Or, you know, there's just, so every day sometimes is different. You know, it's been hard to really find a way to balance both, you know, the fog of war friction, I think they call it in the war fighting the friction. Right. Right. So Plans how- change. Where do most of your taskers come from? Is it mostly internally driven that, hey, guys, I think this is something we should cover? Or is it top down? Is it somebody telling you, hey, we need you to go out here and cover X, Y, and Z? Well, luckily, it's uh, most of the top down things really aren't artistic. This is what's very interesting about the Marine Corps Combat Art Program. And I think a lot of the services, combat art programs in general, they're very um, democratic and sort of uh self-driven and and free in a way. So I don't get tasked usually to create a certain thing. My taskers are generally like job description taskers. Like this is what you need to get done this year. And this is the job description. And this is how, and how you, how you do that is up to you and your, your supervisor kind of thing. So 
that's wow. even got a little bit of looseness in it. So we're lucky in the fact that we don't get tasked top down to do artwork or to do even trips. So that's a very good thing. Sometimes, of course, uh, if you're totally tasked, there's a certain kind of um, relaxation in that, you know. Right. But uh, um, self-managing uh, is part of what every combat artist kind of does. Because when you're a combat artist, uh, you have to be the type of individual that is trustworthy to wander about smartly, so to speak, in a combat zone in a way that doesn't bring uh, problems or dishonor to the program or to the Marine Corps. So you have to, the Marines have to trust you. The, the organization has to trust you. So you have to have a certain individual who is capable of taking direction, but more like being a flexible, self-managing person that can um, handle varying situations. That, that seems to me like that's a rare personality type that you're going for because it's a well, real divide that's straddling the left and right brain type person, right? Right. So as, as, the, as the artist in residence, I have to balance that in my own life, but I also have to find individuals that are trained or have some sort of experience in or capability of deploying to a not friendly area or a place that's just challenging. Let's put it that way. Even let's say it's um, humanitarian relief. Mm. So I, we have, we send a person to a humanitarian relief situation. That's a trying situation. Things are very fluid on the ground. Nothing's really set in stone. You're having to be um, flexible in what, where you can go and what you're doing. So at a moment's notice, Oh, they're going out to such and such location and you're able to go. So you have to have a person who is capable of straddling the two sides of the brain, so to speak, who can do the, uh, the, um, you know, artsy, Oh, I'm not, I'm going to create now in a situation where the other side of the brain is having to regulate everything anyway. So it's always hard to find somebody who is trained or trainable and who is creative. How, I mean, I imagine that if you have to skew on one side or another, it's, minimize lowering your profile finding somebody that can fit in the flow more than finding somebody that is a world-class artist like if you have to skew on one side or another right you need somebody that kind of doesn't draw attention to themselves right yeah i think that's true i think we are very fortunate i've got at least two very well-known and and virtuosic uh artists richard johnson and victor uhas who are both very experienced in uh, reportage and combat art who've been places, uh, but also are world-class artists. So we are mm. very fortunate, but yeah, I think you're right. If you're going to skew on one side, it would be the person that is the less profile that isn't a risk, uh, as far as danger or, you know, you're not going to find them flaking out somewhere <laughs> in, a, in a place where they shouldn't be flaking out. Right. Um, Get, I imagine getting a call from some command going, hey, what's up with your combat artist? They did X, Y and Z. That must be like hell for you. That must be like the worst nightmare. Right. And we, we do we do mitigate and we avoid that. I think that's only ever really happened uh, from what I was talking. I was talking to the curator once. And we were talking about sort this very thing. And uh, and it was a, it was an individual that just couldn't quite hack it in in the in, in the in the position uh they were lower rank. I think they were, I think they were in uniform and they weren't quite uh, comfortable with producing work in 
that kind of an environment. And so they mm. kind of had to recall that person, but it's very rare. Luckily, That's we're great. very good at understanding how to um, weed out or, or just in the interview process, get people that are able to do the job. Yeah. How, and that's what I was going to ask. How do you find that? How do you, how do you test for that? How do you assess that? So much of these things happen via serendipity and networking. And um, it's very interesting. You could do an entire study just on that. Uh, we were talking to um, actually Victor Juhas and Elise McKelvey were both interviewed by the Norman Rockwell Museum recently. Right. And they talked about, they shared their stories. Each shared their stories. Elise was in a classroom and she had a teacher that mentioned in, in the history of art, she mentioned this thing, combat art. And Elise is like, what is this? Combat art? And it was like a 10 minute section in a one class period. And it affected her entire life. Yeah. Uh, Victor was in a courtroom. He was a courtroom artist, a young courtroom artist. And he meets a Howard Brody, famous courtroom sketcher, as well as World War II and Korea combat artist, well-known in both fields, and strikes up uh, what becomes a great mentorship relationship. So these little serendipities, these little com- you know, coming together, networking, somebody just, I, I myself, I was uh, on the internet and I saw this blog that had a link to this Chief Warrant Officer Mike Fay, who was over in Iraq sketching on deployment, and I emailed him and and I said, "Hey, I'm a former Marine and a current artist. This is great that you're doing this. I because I knew about the old works that Colonel yeah. Waterhouse had done, and I'd seen those prints on on the walls uh, in my reserve unit and things. You know, ubiquitous in the Marine Corps. And uh, I just I was so happy to see this program going on. And then you know he had been a recruiter, so he starts recruiting uh. me. The next thing you know, I'm interviewed and um, I'm re-enlisting. And within two months, I was over on my first deployment to Iraq doing combat art. So it's just these things. It's hard to what we do for me to sort of um, cast nets. So we send out MAR admins, um, which I how's a good way to describe a MAR admin? It's like a a job notice. It's it's kind of like a job notice. It's it's a way the Marine Corps and the the, um, the services talk to each other and put out notices. It's like kind of like a, it is kind of like a like a public um, where you post a poster and say, hey, looking for you know, right? Um, and, right. You know, it's, it's things about what the Marine Corps is doing and policy changes and stuff. Anyway, so we send out a MARN and sometimes we advertise in various Marine Corps magazines and that sort of thing. We put out portfolio search notices, so we we do you know, cast out nets and we have a way of getting these um, recruits, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. but we can't really plan for the diamond in the rough. You know, you're always looking for that individual and, and there's just really no way to um, guarantee that you're going to get um, that person. You know, you can, you can open up the, the channels for it and you can, you know, advertise but you you know almost every combat artist that i know came about because of a relationship either in the marine corps or somehow related to someone they knew and the next thing you know they're they're coming alongside so i imagine that a lot of your work also has to be to keep the that artistic flame kind of burning in them so i mean right. is there i I, so I know in your case you got your mfa when you were a combat artist right 
I mean, right. Yes. I, so, I was very fortunate. I got my MFA in 2013 and it was a limited residency program, which actually I highly recommend. It's uh, University of Hartford. Um, CF Payne is the uh, head of the program now. Uh, it's a great way to, especially if you're a professional, a working professional, to get your master's in illustration um, in a way that you can still um, do your work and, and sure. live. But um, yeah, I was on active duty and I had permissive TAD. So we'd go for a week to wherever in the summer and for two weeks in the summer and a week in the fall and a week in the spring. And then we'd write papers and we'd do our artwork uh, under the direction of our um, our mentor. And then we had our graduation and um, got my master's. Uh, thank goodness. And is that something that the Marine Corps and that, and that the program tries to encourage that, hey, guys, keep going back, keep doing continuing education, or what do you right. need to feed yourself artistically? Because we are going to try to keep you in some pretty strict left-right limits, especially when you're right. employed. Uh, is that kind of a major initiative that you all have? Right. We, 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 yeah, whether it's formal or informal, we're always doing things to increase the, um, I guess, keep the skills sharp, you know? So mm -hmm. we have uh, workshops we do here in the studio. We have, uh, we have a new relationship with the Citadel. Uh, they have an art program, by the way, the Citadel. Right, class. right. And uh, we, we worked, um, some of the combat artists went down there um, to be a visiting lecture artists, uh, visiting artists and lecturers, and uh, showing the young um, art majors how to draw and do reportage and telling mm -hmm. the history of combat art and sharing their own careers. So it's like a mentorship. So what it does is it, it, it's a way of finding artists in the future Marine Corps or in, in the services. It's also a way of having those combat artists that we have keep their communication skills alive, keep their, their, their demonstrating the, the so it, it's, and they also did sketching down uh, mm. at the Citadel and also at Paris Island. We, we took a day. I, I went down to Paris Island as well. And so, yeah, we're always finding ways to do the yeah. uh, PME, as we call it, professional military education course. This is really not necessarily military, it, only as far as it is combat art. Right. Um, but it's still a professional education. We're always looking for ways to keep in practice. And we always try to deploy as regularly as we can. And sometimes that's harder than it should be. And sometimes it's easy. It depends. But we always do try to deploy so be, being that you're based out of um, Quantico and that you're close to the D.C. area and you've got, you know, obviously a lot of artistic hubs right around you. How much do you all try to try to think of the best way to put this? Um, expand even the genres that you work in. So, like, would you go would you, would you all like have your heads on a swivel looking for some sort of different innovative crazy artwork if, if you know there's a basquiat exhibit are you guys like oh hell yeah even though that might not translate immediately to the kind of art that you do i mean right. yeah how does that work well we do we have so we also have social, social media accounts where we have we have a, the combat art forum and we have a combat uh, marine corps combat art page group page on facebook and uh, so we do that we share you know hey there's a show and so and so if you're around go to it right or, of course, being in D.C., there's so many good near D.C., there's so many good uh, museums. And um, and we're not very far from Chad's Ford at the Brandywine Museum. And, and uh, we also have the Delaware Museum of Art, Delaware Art Museum mm -hmm. in Wilmington. We, we've got some really great museums in this area. So, yeah, we're, anytime there's a good show, we recommend going. We went to the um, Pennsylvania. Um, oh, what's the museum down in Philadelphia? 
Fine Arts Museum anyway in Pennsylvania. We got to see the World War One show that was there a couple of years ago. Oh my goodness. Uh, I got to see the John Singer Sargent mm. gassed uh, painting, which is like 23 feet wide. Wow. It's wow. absolutely stunning. You, you see it in books and you just don't realize how amazing it is. Um, and there was all sorts of great artwork from all the services in World War One. It was absolutely amazing. So anything, anything to do that we can do to get the artists, you know, to look at the masters, whether mm-hmm. they're combat artists or not. Um, mm-hmm. Luckily, John Singer Sargent was not only a war artist, but a, a master at everything he touched. <laughs> so just getting them in front of surfaces, basically, is kind of my philosophy. And the more you can get in front of that surface and see how that artist, you know, made the marks and constructed the painting or the sculpture, that's going to improve your own skill in ways. And, and we also do workshops too. Like we can get, um, we, we went to a workshop a couple of years ago with Rob Liberace, who's a Maryland DC area artist, mm. absolutely incredible painter and sculptor. Um, and he, we had a five day workshop with him. It was absolutely amazing. And you learn so much. You don't even realize how much you learn until six months later, a year later, when you're still remembering it's coming out through your, your hand. Oh, That's really great. But we do that a lot as much as we can. Have you had an artist or do you know of an artist that's been in the program where um, they do very good representational work and then in their free time, they're like doing abstracts or something that's totally different. And you're like, wow, um, where's um, your, where's your heart at? Or, or is it, you know, like, yeah. is, well, is there that kind of thing? Now, generally speaking, not too much. We do have, you know, like Victor Yuhas got some great, great, um, he does courtroom stuff still. He does political cartoons. He does uh, he, he does like magazine covers for like the Rolling Stone and that sort of thing. So he, wow. so he his work varies quite a bit. Now stylistically, it's still very similar. It gets more a little more abstract or a little more stylistic in those genre than it does for his combat art. But most of the time, no, we're not. Now every once in a while, like I actually have a semi-abstract painting that I did of Al Assad Air Base back in like 2007. Wow. It was my big venture into sort of abstract. Form. It still <laughs> kind of represents. You can see in the color and the way that yeah. it goes, it looks kind of like Al Assad, you know. So yeah. But it's that's as far as I went. We're generally naturalists and realists in what we do. Deep down inside, we long to be like Jackson Pollock and throw paint on the floor. And it, you know, it, it is wonderfully cathartic sometimes to create that way. And if it, let's put it this way, if the artwork, if somebody was doing artwork in their private life that was that way. And it could relate somehow to the combat art experience they had or the, any, any of their own mm-hmm. combat experience. Yeah. That might be considered for the collection. It oh, just depends bad. on how, how well it is done and how it relates to their experience. Um, but you, yeah, generally we don't really vary that much because <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. Right. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a, it's a difficult needle to thread. Right. And I would love to get a little bit more abstract or loose, but I always come back to the same sort of style. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've been getting looser, but it's just, I, I like painting things to look like what they look like, sort of, so to speak. And is, is that, you, how much of that is your editorial or curation decision and how much of that comes down from the top? You know, is there somebody above you that would, that would go away? Hey, what the hell is no, this? Or is that no, really I, on you? So, so our, our curator, uh, Joan Thomas, she's the, uh, she's the supervisory curator of the art collection. She gives great feedback and she'll, she'll, she'll say, well, Lee, what were you thinking here? But she usually doesn't uh, dictate. Right. So we, we kind of know, we keep in communication regularly. So we know what the collection is looking for, especially if we're going to deploy. She may say, Hey, you know, we don't have any artillery uh, 
things. Could you go out with the artillery or, mm-hmm. or the, whatever? And so, but usually, um, usually there's no surprises as far as, um, or, nor are there any dictates as far as what to do. Like if we put in something that we're, you know, is obviously bad or we're just phoning it in, she'll let us know or, or whatever, but she won't say, Hey, you better do this. Or, you know, they don't tell us what to paint. Generally speaking. Gotcha. Gotcha. So were you an artist from an early age? Was that your first love? Some of my first memories uh, were drawing and I was not the biggest athlete. So my dad is a, is a retired football and golf coach and track coach. Mm. So I was never very athletic. I was always sort of a very small. I was the second. I was a twin, a fraternal twin. And I was the second one. And I was the, the sort of run to the litter. And I was premature. And they didn't even know I was coming in 1968, by the way. They, they didn't hear my heartbeat or whatever it was. So I was a surprise. But I was never super athletic. Now, I finally played sports in high school. Uh and played football and I wrestled, but you know, my dad never quite could understand having an artist. Um, now he absolutely is proud of me and he, he praises me for it, but it was always kind of confusing or, you know what I mean? I was yeah. not very athletic, yeah. um, but I, I was always artistic. So I drew when everyone else was like playing basketball or, you know, throwing around the football half the time I was drawing wow. so or playing with clay. And we used to spend hours doing that when I was a kid. And by the time high school came along, what did you think? So now you're playing sports a little bit more, but you have this long history of having done art. Where did you think your life was going? What did you think you were going to do? Well, I always wanted to be an artist. And I also, what's funny is I loved the space race. I used to study astronaut stuff. I either wanted to be, this sounds weird to have these in, in the same brain. I wanted to be either an aeronautical engineer, an astronaut, or an artist. Now, my problem was, when I took the ACT, I didn't do so well on the math. I almost aced the science and I did a very almost aced the English, but I didn't do that well in the math. So I knew I wasn't going to probably be an engineer. Mm. And but I also there's nothing. I also was in band. I was an all conference band. I played euphonium and a little bit of trombone and jazz band, but mm. I couldn't sight read as well or mm. my ear wasn't that great. So I pretty much knew it was going to be art. Now, whether that's graphic design or fine art, I didn't know. I started out as a graphic art major. I switched over to painting my sophomore year because I I wanted to be an illustrator. And we didn't have the, the school I was at didn't have an illustration program. Mm-hmm. But I knew if I learned how to paint, I could be traditional, like a traditional, um, you know, Rockwellian or whatever you call that genre. Yeah. Like a lot of old illustrators were either painted in oil or in gouache or encasing and that sort of thing so i knew if i learned painting i could at least use that um because i didn't want to just do graphic design yeah i wanted to do more of the illustration side and, and so what, i knew it was artwork i just didn't know how that was going to pan out yeah i was gonna say so this is so you graduated from college in 91 right 91 and what did you think at that point what are your career options then as an <laughs> if you want to be an illustrator and all that were you right. running into that fine arts degree conundrum where you've got all this training and no place to use it? Well, right. So the, what's interesting about the illustration world is that in the in the 80s and 90s, with the, the beginnings, rumblings of computers and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, that started, it started becoming harder and harder to get jobs. And I didn't, I hear I was coming about new and this sort of thing. And so I spent, you know, I just tried to build my portfolio. And I, I also was not taught, this is one thing about art school, they need, they need to reform. Mm-hmm. They really looked down upon 
being a good businessman, business person. They poo-pooed it as if it was selling out. You know, they were purists in the fine art department. So I was not well prepared for how to market myself as an artist or how to work on the business part of it and the yeah. contracts and, yeah. you know, promotion and all that stuff. So I spent, I spent, you know, almost 20 years starving artists, you know, we're building those portfolio. Then I, then I really became um, more of a, I did portraits and I did landscapes really main. I actually became in a sense a fine artist instead of an illustrator. Um, and so by the time I was a full-time working artist, which was early two thousands, um, yeah, I was not really doing illustration at all. I was, I was, I turned out to be a fine artist, which is interesting. Wow. And where my were goal you had been to do illustration? Yeah, sure. And where were you? Where were you? Where I were was you down, of being I a starving artist? Florida. Okay. I, so I started in Missouri. I got my degree at Northeast Missouri, which is uh -huh. now called Truman State University. Um, it's the Harvard of the Midwest, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, we actually, we were very proud. It was actually not so easy to get into that school. They had some testing requirements for the just general ed that was kind huh. of, but anyway, it was a regional state school. Sure. They had a really good fine art department though. I was very happy. I started out, started out at Mizzou my freshman year and I transferred up to uh, Northeast Missouri. And on the military side, interestingly enough, I was a Naval ROTC midshipman. Um, I was not scholarship, but they offered me one, but I said, no, sir, I, I don't think so. I think I'm going to go up to uh I got to transfer up to Northeast Missouri and, and, and I'll, I'll pursue artwork. I'm going to be an artist. I don't think I'm going to pursue the, you know, being, being, a, being an officer, which is funny because then I never knew I was going to be a combat artist, but it would have been nice if I had been commissioned. And anyway, <laughs> I ended up being right. an artist for the military, which is, but of I thought oh, I'm going to be an artist. I think I'll go up to this other university and, and I, I'll turn down the, the scholarship possibility. And but, so let me get the timeline, right? You had been in the Marine Reserves prior to college, right? Right. I went. Yeah. So I I left at I graduated high school. I was still 17. I was in boot camp. I turned 18. I graduated as a Marine from boot camp in August of 1986. Sorry about that date. It's old. <laughs> and then I went to immediately to college like the weekend I grad. So I graduated Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego, California on friday like august 22nd or whatever that was and monday morning i was dropped off at college wow it was crazy summer okay crazy so experience. so let, let's unpack a couple of those things so why did you go right into the marines out of high school i was a young patriotic and historic loving soul i loved history i loved especially world war ii history i loved uh, the Marine Corps history. I just, there was something about it that was calling to me. This was also during the Reagan era sure. where everybody in my high school graduating class practically was either going into the military or their friend or brother or whatever. So it was huge in small town, Missouri. And so, yeah, I just, I, I just knew that I was going to serve somehow. And I figured reserves were the best way to do it because when I thought about, wow, four years of active duty, when you're 17, that seems like forever. Right. So right. I was like, well, I'll go reserves and then I go to college and that's better. So that's what I decided to do. And you went into the reserves thinking it was going to be a career or thinking, hey, I'm just going to do, I want to do my time. I want to do my part yeah, and then I, I'll get out. Yeah, I thought it was, I didn't really think I was going to stay in ultra long term. I knew I was, because mm -hmm. even then, you know, you sign up for six years in the reserves and that's a long time. Yeah. So I, 
I, I didn't think necessarily that I would go 20 years, but I certainly thought it would be a little while. Okay. You know, just, but mainly to serve my time. I, I, you know, I, I was patriotic and I, I still think that young people should serve in some capacity. And did you, did you want to jock it up as a reservist? Were you like, let me do, let me do infantry. Let me do something like that. Or were you trying to, <laughs> no, were you going, I, Hey, I want to go so, to my strengths, you know? Well, what, <laughs> I myself am a proud pogue is what, you know, as they say. Uh, now I started out as a computer operator. So I actually went to Quantico for MOS school. Now what an operator is, I had hoped to get programmer because I knew that there was a future in programming. Wow. What I ended up being what we called a tape ache, which was 4034 computer operator. And the whole, my whole job consisted of going to the tape library when a certain number appears on the screen, asking the tape library to the little window to pick up tape number or whatever. And that person gives you the tape. You take this magnetic tape, you know, like in the James Bond movies, yeah. it rotates. You put, you open up, press one button, the plexiglass window comes down. You put the little spool on, you feed the little magnetic tape down the bottom, you press a button, it closes, and you press it to start, and it sits there and goes back and forth making little James Bond computer room noises until finally they it stops and then it asks you to get the other tape. And so you do that. That's what we were. But wait, and what are these tapes doing? I don't get it. What so are the this tapes was, doing? This, so these, these tapes were, um, this was at the, um, the finance center in Kansas city, Missouri, they were all of the Marine Corps. This was all dispersing and pay issue. Probably most of it was pay related stuff. So that, that, that shop handled all the Marine Corps checks. This is about back when they actually uh, wrote out the checks, typed them out, printed them out and sent them off by the mail. So that was probably the vast majority of what was going on with those wow. those tapes was was financial. So this is just data. This is just data. pure data, data that's on those yeah. tapes. Oh, <laughs> and the funny thing is, my phone that I have in my pocket is probably five times or whatever more powerful than, and with the internet is infinitely more powerful than the, the biggest computer room we ever worked in. Of course, yeah. That's the pieces insane. came in a little bit later, and then I switched over to uh, public affairs, which was in the, in eighty nine or so, maybe eighty eight. And then I became a combat correspondent, which was another, actually a great job. You, you, mm -hmm. I got to go around when my unit would go out in the field, I would be, you know, taking my camera out. I'd interview, I'd take photographs, I'd write a story for the newsletter. That it was a great job. And did you at this, while you're doing this on reserve duty, you're going to college. Did it impact your college career in any way? Did you notice that either it opened up things for you or closed things off to well, you because you had to keep your Marine mind on. Well, what's interesting too, is that I found myself, you get, you, you're in two different cultures, obviously. So I was right. in the Marine Corps culture. Okay. And so that's a certain type of culture, obviously. And then I would go to the art lounge in the art school. Now, even though, so it, it was a fairly conservative college, small town, Missouri. I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't like radical, but it's obviously a different sort of culture than the military. Yeah, sure. So I found myself being sort of sometimes looked at strangely because I had my closely cropped hair and then it was just, you know what I mean? I was straight laced, you know, yeah. while they may have been participating with, you know, uh, alternate substances. Of course I couldn't do that. Yeah. And so it, it's just a weird culture to be in and out of, you know, you're coming from reserve culture and into a civilian art culture. Um, did you feel like you yeah? Did you feel like you were missing out on something, or did you oh, feel no? Like I was actually very glad. I look back, okay. especially, and I'm very glad that I didn't involve myself in some of those activities because 
you know, it isn't good, you know, long-term. We, you're not right. thinking that when you're 21, you know, you're not, you don't care about that sort of thing. But I'm very sure. glad now that I had that. And what basically the Marine Corps, um, it opened doors in a sense in my college career, but because what it did, um, it not only made me disciplined or kept me disciplined, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a very important thing for life, but it also opened up some doors uh, artistically. So my, one of my buddies in the Marine Corps Reserve was um, Kevin Fitzpatrick, who was the, he was going to school at Northeast Missouri. He was the publisher and editor-in-chief of this underground college newspaper called The Pundit. And uh, I became the cartoonist for that newspaper. And so I started doing cartoons for him. And then he got me into the Marine Corps Public Affairs section. He was part of that section in the reserve unit. So that opened up doors career-wise and just artistically and at college. And so, but what what that also did for me uh, in the Marine Corps, my experience as a, especially as a combat correspondent, it allowed me to, it practiced me in the idea of being relatively freewheeling uh, with just limited direction and, you know, going around, finding things to do, finding things to write about, finding things to photograph. It kind of trained me in a way for the sort of thing I would need to do or be as a combat artist later on. I didn't know that was happening, sure. happen, but it really did help. So when you graduated college, what was the plan then? Because you still have your Marine career, but now what are you doing? You're going to oh, go so, make a living as an artist now. Right. Just go. So what I planned, my short term plan was to build my portfolio. So just to start painting, I worked as a waiter, of course. I worked as a bank teller for a couple of years. That was actually a very good job. I did. Um, and was I this still in Missouri? Fixed, Sorry, was this still, still in Missouri? Missouri? So I okay. stayed around my college town. I, I went into the president's office at the university. I got an appointment one day, went in and said, hey, sir, you need some artwork on your walls. And so, oh, sure. And so they commissioned me to do a whole series of artworks for the university, which turned out to be very good. Wow. But uh, so I just started building my portfolio. And I, the long-term plan was just to survive um, and just eventually be doing it full time. And that eventually happened. But I really wasn't, I really, like I said, I really wish that my university, the classes in the art, the art field would have really at least had some sort of business classes. I did have a business class in my master's program because they understand these things. Sure. But in the illustration field, they understand. But in the fine art world, in the, in the universities, they really need to do some stuff. So I really wasn't prepared uh, for the paying the bills side. So I struggled for years and eventually, of course, built my portfolio, built my clientele, that sort of thing, and was working eventually full time uh, in the early 2000s as an artist. If you had had to, if you had been able to wave your wand and make changes to the curriculum, what, what's the most important thing for artists to learn during that time? I mean, besides just generic business skills, is there something specific that artists don't do? the, The most important thing is marketing. You know, not to be, you know, not to be like stuck on yourself or nobody likes a self-aggrandizing person. Sure. But you have to be able to say, hey, you know what? I am the right person for this job. I, my skills would suit this job. You know, this I might be exactly what you're looking for. And to really be proactive in getting your your name and your work out there. Now, it's a lot easier now with the Internet. Right. But it still takes that sort of initiative and drive. And they, that's really what I think needs to be talked about more in the, uh, in the, the educational side is how to self promote, how to really do these things, you know, how to do contracts, how to, but how to really promotion is really the thing. And then back then, I mean, when we're talking late eighties, early nineties, yeah. I mean, you're, everything's, everything's analog. I mean, you're doing every, I mean, what are you doing? You're handing out 
pictures and postcards yeah. and flyers. Right. Like, right. We, yeah. literally had, right. I, I actually, one year I did the, uh, the, the yellow pages. <laughs> so I ended up getting like three calls the whole year. And like two of them were people saying, Hey, could you donate your work for an auction? It's rigging. It, it's going to be good for your career and your exposure. <laughs> so I wasted like 350 bucks for that year, which is a lot of money. In 1990, whatever. Well, so, I, you know, I thought you get calls for, for like house painting. You know, somebody think you're right. a painter. Well, oh, great. Too. I'll like, get house painting. Yeah. Yeah. I actually did faux finishing and stuff too to pay the bills, you know. So I painted <laughs> a few walls. So yeah. what, what got you to move to Florida? How did that come about? Okay. Oh, so in, oh, this is a very interesting story. So I was, I'm a Christian. So I was also involved in one of the things I figured I needed to do was somehow serve uh, with my, my talents somehow. So I got involved in this job hunting service for Christian people, and it takes your skills and it sends your resume out. I got um, interviewed by the Youth for Christ International to be this uh, administrative assistant. Now, that wasn't art related necessarily. So I spent some time auditioning for that job and actually went over to Cyprus and the Mediterranean, went oh. out to Hawaii. And eventually he said, well, you know, you, you got an artistic temperament you maybe you know <laughs> maybe you should work for someone else because he was a micromanager and so i didn't really do well with that i was an american and a micromanager and he was not and he was he didn't he, he, I, he was i was american and i didn't like micromanaging he was a micromanager and so we had different culture and different attitudes and so the next thing you know i get a call from this haiti mission this baptist haiti mission it's called and they're down in near port-au-prince and so i ended up going down to be the crafts development officer for Baptist Haiti Mission in Fairmont, Haiti. And I spent over two years down there um, working with local artisans, buying and selling, um, trying to help them improve their arts and their crafts so they could live, <laughs> so they could make more money, actually put food on their table. And then I also met my wife down there. So Kelly, my wife, she went from Florida. She was in St. Augustine. She moved down. She had grown up in St. Louis. We grew up 60 miles apart from each other. Wow. She went down to Flagler College, graduated down there, and she was sent uh, as a missionary to a mission in Port-au-Prince. I went down there. I met her down there. First date I asked her to was the Marine Corps birthday ball down in Port-au-Prince because the Marine Corps security guards had a, a ball every year. Of course, we always have the birthday ball in November. Yeah. And so they asked me to give the, the invocation. I said, sure. So I needed a date. I asked her out. Long story short, we're going to move back eventually. Best place to move? Hmm. Small town, Missouri? or Florida. Ah, okay. So she had a job as a teacher waiting for her. So she went back to her teaching job and I went down to Florida or went up to Florida and painted landscapes and worked at a gallery doing framing and was represented as a portrait artist as well. And so there, yeah, so I ended up in a, in the, a better art market down there in Florida as opposed right. to where I was in Missouri. So I just want to stay in Haiti for a second because that, I don't want to skip over that. Oh, no, you don't. Two, don't two years, two years in Haiti. I mean, oh, man, my let me tell Lord. You. Well, what's interesting is I even went back for the Marine Corps after the earthquake in 2010. I went down on a two week or so deployment with the humanitarian relief down there. Uh, and, and I was a, an a interpreter and a combat artist um, with the Mew that went down there. Um, do you still speak Spanish, French fluently? I do. It's, it's, a, it's a Creole. It's a Patois. The Creole, it's yeah. actually easier to learn than French. Mm. Um, the, it's got, um, it's, there's no like gender cases and there's, it's easy. It's phonetically spelled. Mm. So for an American, it's a lot easier to learn than French. But yes, I speak it fluently. Okay. And so when you went down, yeah, what was that like when you went down after? Oh the my goodness! So I'm flying in. So this will tell you a little bit about. So I'd been in Hawaii like the year prior, and it's the same uh, latitude, 
as Haiti, by the way, very similar latitude. But as I'm coming down, what looks to be a beautiful environment, where the plane is circling down into the airport of Port-au-Prince, and I'm looking out the window, and I see these beautiful red roofs. I'm like, oh, this is quaint. So pretty. Yeah. And as we get further down, I realize those red roofs are not, you know, terracotta tile red roofs. That's corrugated, rusted yeah, tin yeah. red roof. And as you got lower and lower, you started seeing the reality of the poverty that's down there in Port-au-Prince and the whole area. And it was shocking. And I walked out. You know, it got my bags and walked out into the airport. There's outside, there's this huge rush of people waiting to take the new blancs, as they call us. And you're, you don't speak the language and they're all yelling. Luckily, I had a gentleman who was a friend, became a friend, Kirk, and he met me uh, with a sign with my name. You're traditional, you know, right. Chris, battle. Right. You know, I was like, oh, right. okay, good. And so I went with him and we traveled up the mountain road and I thought I was going to die because there's these thin mountain roads and there's these big cement trucks careening down and sure. goats on the one side and people walking. It was such a shocking difference in culture, but it's a beautiful place. Haiti is a beautiful place and wonderful people. But Port-au-Prince itself is so frenetic and hectic and hot. Um, yeah, it's it's something else. And you were there. What years was it that you were there? for those So I was years? there from 99 to 2001. So right before 9-11, we came back in late July, I think, okay. 2001. So okay. 9-11, 2001. Yeah, it was, we, I was in Florida, did a new job, uh, and that's when 9-11 happened. So, yeah. Okay, got you. Got back. And so in the wake, uh, so basically you had been out of the Marine Corps at, at this point, right? Right. Because you're... So I, yeah, I got out in 96. And so I okay. basically served eight years doing drills and two years in the IRR, the Individual Ready Reserve. And then yeah. I went, so I was out. I never thought I was going to re-enlist at this time. I. I had decided that, you know, I maybe I should get out. And so that's what I did. And you never um, deployed as a reservist during that time, right? You no, didn't do I Haiti the, for the first time yeah, or anything. I, so yeah. my drill, for example, my drill instructors, I had, a, you know, a couple sergeants and a staff sergeant drill instructor. And it was not uncommon to see a, a, a sergeant or a staff sergeant with two ribbons on their chest, right? Yeah. One, two ribbons. That's it. There was just nothing going on unless you yeah. went to Grenada or, you know, Panama or wherever. Um, and the Gulf War was the big thing. And I was... Uh, not given orders. So I, my, my the 24th Marine Regiment went over there. All my buddies went over there. But since I was a journalist, they didn't cut orders for the public affairs people. We stayed back and uh, ran the, basically ran the skeleton of the company while the stragglers came in and the, the unit was over there. Sure. Yeah, so I didn't I, deploy until I re-enlisted. And, and then immediately then, deployed when I Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how did you feel after that, after that enlistment? Obviously you didn't plan to re-enlist. Did you feel like it had been worth it? Did you, were you grateful for the experience? Did you feel unfulfilled? Just how did, how did the Marine Corps leave you after that first um, stint? Well, I got out. Um, I loved the Marine Corps Reserve. I really did. I, I, I don't know why. It's one of those things where you kind of regret your decisions when you're younger. You know, I got out, eh, whatever. I didn't think about it much, yeah. but I really should have stayed in, obviously. Now, um, yeah, and it's just one of those things. I, uh, yeah, I loved it. I, um, the reserves is a very good um, way to balance. If you don't want to go full time active duty, the reserves is a great way to serve, and and you get your Marine Corps experience and you get your civilian experience at the same time. It's really a great thing. So, so in in two thousand one, you all moved back to Florida. Nine eleven happens, and I mean, what did that mean to you at that well, moment? You know what's in yeah. Right. What's interesting is I never, I didn't think about, because I guess I saw myself as older and I thought, 
okay, that that enlistment's for the younger folks. You know what I mean? So I, I, I'd served my time. It didn't really occur to me. And we were starting a family. So I did, it, it didn't occur to me to go off and, and enlist until I heard about that combat artist, uh, Mike Fay. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, okay, maybe. Because we, you know, nobody knew how long we were going to be doing that. Sure. Know, we were on terror. Sure. And so sure. by 2005, okay, this looks to be something that we're going to be doing. It's very important. Yeah. And maybe I need to consider it. Yeah. So that's when, you know, things turned around and I found that opportunity. And career wise, where were you in Florida? I mean, so you were, you had representation, your work was, right. was going up, but were you yeah. making a living or, or what was going on? With scratching. That? So I was working full time. Uh, I had been working as a framer and, and working in the gallery. I was working, I was doing portraits and landscapes full time, but you know, having one good month and three bad months and, you know, your wife kind of wants you to make a steady income. So I was, it, it, you know, I had done that for a long time though. So I was sort of used to it, but I, yeah, I, my, the Marine Corps has provided me such a better um, opportunity for, for a creative expression and career, you know, like yeah. the, the amount of, of impact I've been able to have, thank God <laughs> has been so much bigger than if I was just doing landscapes down in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. As fun as that is. I mean, I had a blast of landscapes down in Florida, right. but this is so much bigger in scope. Um, for example, when I found out that, oh, you mean if I become part of the combat art program and I do artwork for the collection and it's accepted in the collection, it's going to be taken care of in a, in a national collection for forever. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah, no, I absolutely. I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't make, cause it seems like it is a dream gig. You have the reliability of a steady paycheck and right. you have the legacy of your work. Right. And it's like, now just go do your work. And then, yeah, right. you, you know, live the military lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. very rare thing. It, yeah. it, it's kind of funny because my, my wife is an editor and a writer as well as a teacher. And so if I tell people, yeah, my wife's a writer, they're like, oh, okay, yeah. Or she, they say, hey, what does your husband do? Oh, he's an artist. Oh, okay. What does he really do? Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. So, yeah. Yeah. You know? So I, I'm able, I'm one of those rare individuals that's able to be to be paid regularly for doing creative things. And when you re-enlisted, you re-enlisted as a combat artist, right? I mean, that wasn't yeah, an adventure. So, like you knew that was going to be a going in. Yes. So I, yeah, when, when I re-enlisted, it was with the full understanding that I would be mobilized immediately to active duty. And then I would deploy as a combat artist for the Marine Corps. So even though my MOS was still, I think at that time it was 0151 admin clerk because I had changed to admin clerk right near the end to become a uh, RP because our Navy chaplain didn't have a, a Navy person to help him. So they needed a chaplain's assistant. So they, they asked for volunteers and I volunteered for that. So I was still an 0151 clerk, admin clerk, but really my billet was combat art. So I wasn't going to be doing any public affairs stuff or gotcha. clerking. I was going gotcha. to be doing artwork. And how did it feel then going on that deployment on that very first deployment? I mean, so suddenly you get you're getting a regular paycheck. So you got all these big, significant emotional events that happen all at once. You're suddenly back in the military. You're older. Oh, you're getting a, right. a paycheck, and you're on a combat deployment for the first time right. ever. I mean, it, like, what did that all that mean to you? What a crazy fast time period. So we, yeah. so I had orders. I, I re-enlisted in like July, like July. It was July 28th of 2006. I came on RCT orders is what they were called uh, in August. 
I came up for a month to Quantico. I got new uniforms. So the gear was different. The uniforms were different. The Marine Corps was pretty much the same, although it was the first time I ever heard the phrase sergeants and below. Sergeants below go over here. Sergeants below because before in the Marine Corps, it was uh, privates to Lance Corporal, corporals and sergeants and staff and CEOs and above. So, so it was a different, slightly different culture, Yeah, but same Marine Corps ultimately. And then, uh, so I was learning the gear. I went to uh, familiar, familiarize on the M16 again, which was fun. You'd never really forget. Um, and then, yeah. And then I, I basically also was doing drawing practice, uh, drawing, you know, helmets and that sort of thing and trying to practice up on that. And then I went back to Florida, finished up the affairs, uh, got orders in October, no, September. So August, I came up and in September, I came back up. And then in October, I was in Iraq for the first time at 38 years old. And uh, I remember my first going outside the wire, I was with uh, a platoon uh, from uh, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. And um, we went outside the wire, this little fob off of Route Michigan, which is in, in uh, Al Anbar province, west of Baghdad. Or, or, anyway, it's near Fallujah and Habania. Anyway, um, and I had this, I had my pistol, of course, because as a Marine combat artist, you have, that's your TO weapon. That's what you're supposed to carry. I didn't have an M16. And they're like, well, you can't, you got to have some sort of rifle. And so they gave me a shotgun that they had there, but it didn't have a sling. So I had five oh, God. Sh- shotgun shells on this on this little thing on the on the stock of this thing. Yeah. It didn't have a sling. So I literally walked around with my camera with this shotgun in the crook of my elbow, so to speak. You know, so I'm holding it yeah. up, my camera oh, up, God. and I'm sort of holding the shotgun as I walk along, um, like flagging everybody as you're walking. Well, basically yeah, yeah, flagging right. everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, this is unique. Um, gee, I hope I don't get shot. Um, <laughs> But it, it was very interesting, needless to say. And you know, uh, what was I mean, that was kinetic. I mean, that was pretty kinetic right, right then, right? Well, this is near yeah. this is out west. So yeah, on 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 I, I luckily never had to fire my weapon everywhere I went. But yeah, this was this was Al Anbar province in two thousand six. This was it was happening. Um, yeah. you know, IEDs and 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 kinetic, you know, you'd run into something. I we um I think it was with that same unit. We went out and we saw the uh, some some uh, a dead Iraqi insurgents from the day prior, where that platoon had been in, in a skirmish, uh, and they re they sort of rediscovered the area. You know, went back and saw what was happening, reconnoitered a bit. Um, so yeah, it was kinetic. It was happening all over the place. Um, I just was very fortunate to miss it most of the time. Yeah. And how did you feel actually now doing the art there when you actually first got your pencil out and you're actually starting to sketch? I mean, do, were you feeling fulfilled? Were you feeling scared? Were you like, holy oh, shit, this is the oh, real deal? Like, what, what was right. going well, through your mind? So, what is so funny is that being on an actual patrol is so uh, surreal. So when you're finally there and you're walking along, you're like, it's like you're taking this strange stroll yeah. out in this community in the desert and then back into the town. And, and you're like, wow, we are really vulnerable right now. Now, granted, we'll shoot anything that moves, but it's just this weird thing where you're sort of walking about not very fast and you're just sort of waiting for something to happen. And I'm sitting there, I'm taking photographs. I'm thinking, well, that's a kind of a pretty looking scene. And wow, these camouflage utilities really work very well. This was actually a good government expenditure. That's pretty cool. Um, and this is pretty good uh, flak jacket. I'm glad for that, but it's just a very strange thing, but you're, you're sort of scared, but you're, it's just a very strange feeling. 
And then, so you're trying to focus on your job and you're trying to like for, I'm just trying to be an asset to the platoon and not be a, de- a detriment because, you know, infantry, they don't like, you know, what do they call them? People that hang on or whatever. That you, you're kind of seen sometimes as a bullet a, magnets, or yeah, right. And you're just yeah. like you're just sort of like, oh, you're not going to be able to pack it when it happens, right? So <laughs> they look at you more as as, as a um, liability because they got to take sure. care of you. They got to they got to watch you as well, right? So my I'm focusing on being a decent marine and also being an artist. And so I'm I'm looking around. I'm taking as many photographs as I can. When we stop, I can sketch and trying to get you know. And you're shaky. Your hands are shaky. You're like trying to focus. Um, yeah, it's just. Uh, a lot to take in um, and yet also very banal too when it's not when nothing kinetic happens sure. so yeah so so i've asked this of certain guests in the past and it seems really appropriate here was there ever a thought in your mind that if something were to happen to you i mean obviously that would be bad for many reasons and obviously right. you wouldn't want that for many reasons but on top of it you wouldn't have kind of you wouldn't have fulfilled your life's purpose. There's like a lot of work right. pent up in you, a lot of art that never would get out. And so it almost be right. a double injury. Was there ever that <laughs> sense of like, God damn, nothing can happen to me because I really need to get, uh, there's well, so yeah, much I, I mean, still have to give. Right. I don't want to be like Nero, you know, when he was dying, saying, oh, the world is losing a great artist. <laughs> you know? um, but you do want, yeah, there's that sense of, oh gosh, I hope I you know can get some stuff done here. And I actually would think, I would, I thought like, man, I hope my sketchbook gets not taken Right. Like, I hope that it's not like used against us or something. Right. You know, I, oh, I was actually yeah, thinking sure. that, you know, I hope that these sketches actually make it somewhere. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Cause there's always that chance. I mean, we, there have been combat artists, especially in some of the bigger wars that were lost. Um, and it just, it does happen, unfortunately. Yeah. And I thought about that. I was like, yeah, I hope just to hope to make it to get, and, and you hope that you're, you know, destined to, um, to do great things, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. There is that thought in the back of your mind. Yeah, I believe it. How long were you over there? What, what was your deployment like? Was it so, typical yeah, Marine so we, Corps, they, six we, months? Yeah, we went for very short-term deployment. So the first time I was over there, it was less than three months, wow. which is, it okay. sounds very sort of like um, um, prima donna-ish, but they didn't want the historians or the artists spending too much time in country because what happens is your productivity and your creativity start to wane and you get, there's a certain quality that goes down so we you know three months would be the top usually of a deployment i think mike they might have gone for five months or six months but uh and that's up to the artist too i could have stayed longer probably but you really want to produce some of the fine art things back in the studio so you're really itching to get back because mm. a lot of the sketches the sketches can be very great and you can and i actually did paint in camp Fallujah in my little tin can hooch so i was able to do a couple of paintings uh, at least start them over there but you want to get the fine art stuff going. And so you really got to get back to the, the more safe, the safe place and the, the, the quiet place and to be able to mm-hmm. create these things in a timely manner while the experience is still relatively fresh. Yeah. So three months, I went again in 2007. I went, I came back in, in like January of 2007. I went back in October of 2007 with, or September with the Ospreys, the um, BMM 263 on their first deployment. So then I was in Al-Assad for just a month and a half, I think, because I was a lot of the deployment happened on the ship as we were cruising over. And then I stayed in country for a little over a month and then went out with them on flights and places and then came back home. And, and then I went to Afghanistan once as well for just a short term. 
Okay. Where'd you go in Afghanistan? I was down way far south, Helmand Province. Okay. Uh, so we were down, uh, we were at uh, Bastion, which I think we called Leatherneck at the time. And then I mm-hmm. went to the, um, oh, Fiddler's Green um, was a fire base. And I visited there. I went, we went all the way down to the river where the LAR, the third, and the third LAR was down there. Anyway, so we were way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I didn't go to Nauzad. I saw, I think, <laughs> thank God. But no, it was, we were way out down, down south. Yeah. And what year was that that you went to Afghanistan? That was 2009, summer of 2009. So you went six, seven, and nine. You were deployed. Yeah, okay. Right. And, then I, and I also went to Haiti in 2010. So I got back from Afghanistan. And then within just a few months, I went to Haiti after the earthquake. Okay. And then I went to the Philippines again, or I went to the Philippines in 2013, I think. So I went on some interesting things where yeah. Yeah, the Marine Corps is essentially the places that are not, they're not like the brochure. You know, yeah. why yeah. can't we fight in France again? I don't <laughs> I've been going to these terrible places where it just doesn't look like the brochure. Yeah, I think if you fight in Belgium, you get good cheese and chocolate, right, exactly. don't you? There's yeah, something, I know. Right? I know. I know. Yeah. <sighs> well, so what what first comes to me with with that for especially those early years where your op tempo was relatively high how did you find your art progressing or did you find it just kind of holding steady because you're so focused on that first wave that you're oh. not do you look back at it and go oh god i could have done this or i could have oh, done well, that yeah. with well it. you always look back at your work and you go oh my yeah. gosh sometimes yeah. I st- i'll see a piece that i did and I'll say oh hey i did that okay good but of course you look back at your early work and you say wow i don't know if i'd have done it that way but mm. the, the good part of that is um, you know, I've got my master's degree now, but I really think that my master's program, as far as my fine art and my 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 skills is concerned, mm-hmm. my master's program was deploying as a combat artist and spending full time, even back in the studio as a combat artist, where the Marine Corps was paying full time to do artwork. That I, I my work developed so much more rapidly than it did when I was working as a waiter and then trying to paint part time and whatever. And Interesting. Time, even doing portraiture and landscape full time, I was able to really focus on painting, especially when you're painting people. And you're painting, um, whether it's aviation assets or whatever you got, there's, you know, it's demanding. So, so just so, having to paint people and, and yeah, goes increased crazy exponentially. Okay. Um, was, was it painting? What, what was the secret sauce? Was it that you were painting people? Was it the stakes were high? Was it that, what, what was it that actually well, made your craft grow and made your skill set? Well, it's a very, so all of that. So painting people is very, very challenging. Painting narratives is very challenging. Finding the combat art scene that's not only an actual happening, because combat art is your experience, but finding a scene that really speaks to you as an artist, but also as a Marine, and that'll speak to any Marine out there, and even cross generations. Like some of my work, a Vietnam vet will see it and say, oh, that's kind of like that for us, and that sort of thing. So we're trying Mm -hmm. to paint things that are for every Marine, in a sense. And uh, so you're trying to find that. So that's challenging, trying to find the right scene. It's also a very serious and heartfelt subject. And so it, it's a very weighty thing. So you can't just do it lightly. Mm-hmm. And so that develops a certain amount of, of, you know, deduction skill or whatever you call that, where you're critiquing, self-critiquing and trying to figure out how to improve certain things. And, and of course, yeah. then you also have contact with other artists and you're, you're throwing ideas off each other and that sort of thing, even though it's a small world of combat art. Yeah. Every service has a couple of people that they use for combat art. So we're all kind of in network. 
Yeah, sure, sure. Did you find yourself fulfilled? Like, would you come back and be buzzed after a deployment going, holy shit, I just got this stuff. It just feels right. great. I feel on purpose. Or well, what was, it's what were great you like? that way. Yeah, that's the great part. Now, the bad part is it's like a double-edged sword because, yeah. holy cow, I have more source material now from the last two months or whatever. I could spend years painting and drawing based on that. And then you do it again in another year. And then you've got years worth of reference material. So it's like, you have this sense of, wow, I'm so stoked. I'm, I'm charged up. I got to get this done. And another thing where you're like trying to paint, which is a longer process. And, you know, you can only fish, finish a certain amount per year. And then, you know, you really, and then, so there's this weight almost of like, wow, I wish I could get to that one. Or so you really have to select the ones you really, really, really feel that you really can't live without if you don't get to. So it does also help you decide that. But yeah, there's so much that you could do. So many experiences and so much reference material to paint. It's it, you know I I'll be an old retired dude still working on some of these things. Do you think you will? Do you think oh, you'll, yeah. you'll be paying this oh, yeah. the rest of your life? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I could do this all the way until they bury me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, do you think you could go back to even like the 2007 deployment? Look at oh, sketches right. and go. Oh, yes, it's there still, still right images, there. Right. Yeah. There are still some images that I would like to do from my first deployment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Because I, um, I would chart it out a bit too. Like I'd come back and I'd figure out what am I going to do, and I listed out, did some thumbnail sketches of like this kind of painting and that, and I, and there's still a couple of paintings that I would love to do for my first deployment that I never got to, and several of the deployments are just like that, you know. I, I don't want to, um, I do want to let you go on a, in a reasonable amount of time, but right. I, I, I want to ask just about the transition to becoming the artist in resident and becoming in residence and becoming a supervisor and having kind of managerial duties. How, what is that? Let me just start personally for you. What does that meant artistically for you? Have you gone, eh, I like it. It's important, but uh, there's also an artistic part of me that feels a little restrained and I've, I can't be as freewheeling as I used to be, or well, does it, is it enlivening? Well, it, it, um, it's a school. So it is, it is teaching me out of necessity to mm -hmm. work on my style artistically so that I can get more done artistically with less time. So in a sense, it's a very good thing, but yeah, I've been sometimes going, man, I wish I didn't have to do this admin thing or whatever, but those are necessary things. So I don't want to say that that's bad. Right. So the managerial and supervisory part of the job are very important for the future of the program and that sort of thing. And it is a very important part of the work, but yeah, the artist in you wants to just go freewheeling and go get lost in the paint for a while. Right. Yeah. But it has affected. So it has caused me to realize, Hey, you know what? Maybe I should paint with this medium or maybe. And so my, my, my painting, my vocabulary of my mark making, whatever my toolkit is becoming much more of a, and also my illustration degree has helped me with this too. I'm trying to become the kind of painter that can say more with more efficient brushstrokes, not so, you know, finely painted over a long period of time, but more of a direct painting situation where I'm saying as much as I can, as quick as I can, because I got to get this painting out and start the next one, gotcha. which I think all illustrators do, you know, as a matter of course, it, 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 it forms you that way. You have to do it. Sure. I want to just also ask about, um, I was going through your Instagram and I saw these kind of whimsical cartoons that you did, or I don't know if whimsical, I, I couldn't tell if it was <laughs> satire, whimsy, uh, but but it was it was cartoonish and it was it was kind of fun. How much of that is a staple? How much of that was just for that one period of time? Like uh, how many other genres well, are you drawing and creating in? 
Well, so my, so my car, the cartoons that I've done are usually just informal ones. I did when I was working for the Navy do, I was actually submitting to the squadrons um, on the, um, uh, the Ronald Reagan. I was actually doing some cartoons for their little newsletter, which was awesome. <laughs> anyway, um, but most of that, most of the cartoons have just informal, just laughing at life kind of stuff, you know. Um, and Charlie Grow has done a lot of good stuff that way. Um, and also Max Uriarty, we, we, we kind of claim him too a little bit. He's affiliated with us a little bit. Of course, he's not, he's, uh, he's made himself his own. Um, he's done his own work, obviously. We didn't craft him, of course. Um, we just like to name drop. But, um, <laughs> but no, he, um, he's, he's today's version of like a Bill Malden. So um, there's definitely a place for that sort of thing in, in the collection. Although we consider ourselves as a collection more of the fine art. The, the collection itself has a lot of stuff that was done by Marines and sailors that are like, yeah, little, little scribblings on the, on the um, MRE box or yeah, cartoons yeah. for their, their, their newspaper when they were out deployed somewhere. So that's an important part of, of fob life, so to speak as well. A hundred percent. And that's worth capturing. Absolutely. How much, I, I know you have to be the company man because you have the hats that you wear and you have to push the Marine Corps arts program, a uh, combat arts program. But is there also room for you to grow your personal brand as well? You talk about marketing and all that. Is that, is there space for that? Is it looked down on? Is there a time well, and a place for it? I mean, I, how do you see that? Well, the, what's interesting is I don't know if, I mean, I think it would be probably like if, if it starts becoming all about Chris battles or any of our combat artists, it is sort of frowned upon and probably should be. So we're not out to make our own brand. So what's funny is when I do things on my own time, half the time it's either Marine Corps related or somehow related to the services, which is very interesting. Mm. When I was a kid, I used to draw some of my earliest drawings were, you know, soldiers and different things and, and, you know, combat scenes and whatever. And now here I am an adult. And even on my private career, I'm doing things that are military related. Yeah. So I don't, my brand in a sense is the Marine Corps in a sense. Like I, yeah, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm so related to it in a sense. And plus my name is Battles for heaven's sake. <laughs> like can't get away from it. Yeah. Right. So if yeah. I was off doing some crazy, you know, besides I really couldn't go too crazy with my own brand with, with artwork anyway, just because yeah, I'd start reflecting poorly depending on what I was painting on. So. Gotcha. Um, so I don't want to do that. Yeah. So, well then, then that makes this an awkward segue, but, um, if there's any links that you want to give out so people can follow you or, or maybe just follow the combat arts program, yeah, I, where should they go? How should they yeah, stay um, in they, touch? Yeah. So they can uh, go, if you go on Facebook, you can look up either the national museum of the Marine Corps and there's uh, uh, various pages from there, the, the, but Google or, or look up um, the Marine Corps combat art program. And that's kind of a long group, but that's our uh, public Facebook group. And that's part of the museum's Facebook group. And we also have, individual artists that may have uh, artwork. Uh, I would Google Richard Johnson. Um, he's also uh, goes by the tag news um, illustrator. Uh, then we have Victor Uhas and that's J-U-H-A-S-Z. Uh, we have C.J. Bauman and I believe he has two N's on the end, so it's B-A-U-M-A-N-N. Um, we had John Deckard who unfortunately has passed away, but a great painter for us, um, wonderfully beautiful work. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there are people out there that are, that are 
great people to look up. I myself, I'm mainly just part of the, if you want to look at my stuff, you can Google my name, Christopher with a K and then battles, but it's all combat art related pretty much. Listen, Chris, this is awesome. And um, I, I don't want to give away the, the, the gig right now, but you're doing Savage Wonderground with us, aren't you? Yes. Danger City. I'm it's so good. excited about that. We're going to talk offline about that, right, but good. I want to make sure we said it because, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to have yeah, you it's on. It's going to be fun. This is a blast, man. I really enjoyed this. Um, let's talk again soon. Oh, yeah, definitely. Anytime. All right. We'll talk to you in a bit, Chris. Thanks. Thanks. That was the savage wonder of Chris Battles. Um, we will have details about the next Savage Wonderground very, very soon. Um, since you now know that Chris works at Quantico, and he's going to be part of our next Savage Wonderground, that gives you a pretty good idea of where the kind of general geographic area that our next Savage Wonderground is going to be. Um, so further details very, very soon. But I'm really excited Chris is going to be there. Um, I think that's going to be a really cool dimension to bring to the show. Okay. Um, other shameless plugs that I have, I don't have a lot yet. The next Savage Wonderground is going to be our last kind of major event for the year. Obviously, if you're on the greater Cornwall, New York area, or find yourself there at any point before December 10th, and uh, you happen to be there over a weekend, let's say, uh, we'd love to see you at the parlor. Um, again, it's 16 seats. We sell out uh, every show. So hopefully you get your tickets in advance. But we'd love to see you there. We have uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook's Good Evening that's currently playing there. Um, and we'd definitely love to have you guys come out and see it. It might be the funniest show we've done all season. Um, people have really been laughing themselves silly with it. Uh, it is a ridiculously, ludicrously funny show. Um, but... Again, that's if you're one of the 16 that happened to make it on a weekend uh, to the parlor. Outside of that, we don't have a, a ton of other big offerings. We're wrapping up our 2022 season. Our 2023 season will really start in April of 23. We kind of go dark as far as performances from January to March uh, as we reset uh, you know, and get ready for the 23 season. So, um, yeah, not a ton of shameless plugs i will all, all i will make sure to or i should make sure i should say i should make sure that you guys all sign up for the uh literary blog if you're not already subscribed um you really should it it's got just phenomenal writing we keep adding more and more veteran writers to it which is a real pleasure for me um the blog has grown and grown and grown we're almost we're getting close to um, a thousand subscribers, which is very cool. Um, and amazing that we still have, uh, you know, such a great open rate of people really open those emails and read the veteran writing every single day. We push it out seven days a week. Um, and it means a lot that everybody's reading and commenting as much as they are. And, uh, yeah, that's just been really, um, fun for us. So, uh, go to vetrep.org, V E T R E P.org. Uh, and go to the Now Playing tab, and you will see how to uh, sign up for the newsletter. Not, I don't know what we call it. Mailing list, newsletter, literary blog, it's all of those things. So sign up for it. Um, you can always go direct to Substack at savagewonder.substack.com. But if you're going to vetrep.org, just make it easy for yourself. Just go there. Uh, it's a one-stop shop for any and everything that you need to know 
about vet rep and what we're up to. Um, obviously we have savagewonder.com where we push out our savage wonder events, but you will find links to it at vetrep.org. So, uh, org is your one-stop shop for any and everything vet rep related. Of course, on Instagram, we are at vet rep theater on Facebook. We are at veterans repertory theater. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. So generally look for us on Facebook or on Instagram. Uh, but if you're on Facebook, it's R E P E R T O R Y veterans repertory theater. And, uh, definitely we would love, we would appreciate your follow. So you can Instagram is probably the best place to keep up with us out of all of our social platforms. We even have a Twitter, which I haven't been on in ages, but we do share stuff through there uh, periodically. And I'll see on like our aggregate account that we get some random crazy message uh, on Twitter from some bot somewhere that hits us up. Uh, Twitter's just a garbage platform. So I'm not a huge fan of it. So we're not, I like initially got us a Twitter handle and then I was like, why? Um, But whatever, we we put some stuff out there occasionally. And uh, so if you want to, I think we're at Vet Rep Theater on, on Twitter. And uh, let me see any other shameless plugs. Again, I'm I'm filibustering on because if you guys have listened this long, you must be gluttons for punishment. Not that I want to take advantage of of your goodwill and just talk on and on and on endlessly, but um, I am going to give myself time to think if there is anything else that you need to know. I don't think there is. So, all right. On that note, um, I should thank our producer, Mike Neal, as always, for getting these episodes out and making us sound halfway decent and i'm christopher paul meyer on behalf of veterans repertory theater see you next time we'll examine the savage wonder of veterans in the arts